It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be together in God's house. I tell you, it's so encouraging to worship next to people who have faith, whose God is uh, working in their lives just as much as he is ours. This is where we receive encouragement from God and are strengthened by faith. I'm going to pray, and I'll invite you to pray with me as we approach the scriptures. God, we all just really need you in one way, shape, form, or another, and in every way we actually need you. And so thank you that you promise to love and to work and to mend our lives and give us hope and blessing in Christ. Would you please soften hearts and allow some people here who right now are not open to you to be open to you? And would you allow the people who are open to you to receive your grace and mercy by faith? Send your spirit, use your word. Thank you for your hope and promises. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure some of you already know this, um, but uh, just a few months ago, one of the most influential and, and godly figures of our century passed away. His name was Tim Keller. Uh, Tim lived a life for God. He was a Christian pastor, an American theologian, and um, an apologist. He was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he was a pastor, a founding pastor of a church in Manhattan, New York called Redeemer. Redeemer went on to have a huge presence in New York City, uh, went on to plant many churches, and changed the statistic in New York from 1% of people going to church to 3 Uh, Tim wrote many books, not just for Christians, but also for non-Christians, so that all people would come to behold the grace and mercy of God. And he also was the president and co-founder of a website that blessed and has discipled many people called the Gospel Coalition. Tim was married for 37 years, had three grandchildren, seven grand, um, three children, seven grandchildren, and the life that he lived left nothing short of a gospel legacy. But I remember back to 2020, three years back um, before he passed away, when he got the diagnosis and was made aware that he had pancreatic, uh, pancreatic cancer. He made that public announcement, and I remember at first being kind of shocked. I was actually kind of confused as to why a man like Tim would get cancer. I had feelings, I had questions to ask God. God, why could this happen? How could this happen? Why would you allow such a thing to happen to a man who lives a life, a fruitful, godly life like this? But I'm super thankful that Tim, by grace and mercy, held on to Jesus and to his very last breath, and uh, before he died, he went on to write this article for the Atlantic, um, the Atlantic Times. And in this article, this is what he said. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdened with the demands impossible for it to fulfill. As God's reality dawns more in my heart, slowly and painfully, And through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I can sincerely say, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, that I've never been happier in my life. 
and that I've never had more days filled with comfort. But it is equally true to say that I've never had so many days of grief. I think it's a wonderful, a a beautiful um, summary of life lived by faith. But after I read this quote by Keller, I thought to myself, if I were given the same situation as Tim, would I be able to speak of God and life and humanity creation like this? I sure hope so. But that thought to me is scary because you know as well as I do that suffering in this life has the potential to ruin us. Why does God allow men faithful men and faithful women to suffer? Why does God allow husbands and wives to find out that their spouses are unfaithful? Why do hardworking people lose their jobs? Why do good people get cancer? The list can go on and on and on. The reality of this life is that we who are living by faith are living in a fallen world. Suffering is inevitable. So it is essential for us in our faith as we look to God to remind ourselves of why things are the way they are, of what is our hope, and in what ways God is currently working to save his church and keep us until the end of time. This morning, we're going to be beginning a new series in the book of Exodus. And so if you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 1. It's kind of easy to find. It's the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, And if you're following along this morning, I've titled the sermon, Living for God When Things Aren't Easy. Living for God When Things Aren't Easy. And the three points I'd like to show you from the first chapter of Exodus are this. Number one, faithful obedience. Number two, inevitable suffering. And number three, the grace and promise of Jesus. We're going to begin our time by reading the entire text up front again Exodus chapter 1. This, my brothers and sisters, this is the most important time of our meeting together. God's word says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt, a new king, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was, a, uh, who was named Sapphira and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. What women? I think my wife belongs in this text. I'm going to keep going. Sorry. Uh, So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you the significance of faithful obedience. And so here we are, we're opening up this new sermon series in the book of Exodus. And as we do, it's, it's important to keep in mind that this book here is not a standalone book as it pertains to the scriptures, but rather is, an, is, is, a, is a book that contains a narrative which picks up on the storyline of the previous book. And that previous book is, is Genesis. Genesis in chapter 50 End it with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people into Egypt. One of his sons, Joseph, during that time in Egypt had been elevated to the second position in command. And um, after being reunited with his family, knowing that um, the land that they were were coming from was experiencing a famine, um, he invited his family, all 70 people, to come into Egypt to find a safe place and refuge of food and provision. And so so that's what happened. They came into Egypt. After this, a a large amount of time went on. And if you look there, verse 6 tells us that eventually Joseph died. Along with all of his brothers, they died, along with the entire generation that first moved into Egypt. And so this is the situation that we inherit as we open up this first chapter of the book. God's people, Israel, descendants of the 12 brothers, are still here. And verse 8 says, a new king arose. Same people, new situation. And the feeling or sense that Moses wants us to pick up on in this first portion of text is actually two things. Number one, that during this time within Israel's existence, God seemed nowhere to be found. And number two, that despite his seemingly nowhere to be found, Israel still continued to be faithful with obedience. And the reason why I make that first point to you is because if you look there in the text, Moses waits all the way until verse 17 to use the word God. The scriptures tell us that that the time spanning between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus was 400 years. 400 years has passed by from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Exodus 12, verse 40, 
The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And so what I'm trying to show you here is that for roughly 400 years, the people of God experienced nothing spiritual, no patriarchs, no spiritual leaders, no signs from heaven, no voice from above, no glimmers of hope, no sensing movement in God's redemptive plan. Their life was full of no spiritual signs and nothing but waiting in silence. One man named J.A. Motyer said this, the people were in Egypt by divine command, under divine promise, awaiting on divine intervention. Of these things, however, they saw no outward sign. Heaven above was as silent as earth around was threatening. Another, another author went on to say this, here there was a careful avoidance of any mention of God. Indeed, in the narrative so far, this helps convey the sense that presumably prevailed among the Israelites in these days. It seemed as though God wasn't around, and unless he showed up, things were not going to get better. And so to put it plainly, life in Egypt, spiritually speaking, was a challenge, and you and I know what that's like. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the thing in all of this that I'd like to show you within this context, in this seemingly godlessness, is found in verse 7. If you look there, look what Moses says. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The Hebrew literally reads this. As for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. And so 400 years of being fruitful and multiplying in waiting, in waiting on silence. Why? Well, here's the answer. Because they were holding on by faith to a story, and that story held within it a promise, which came to them as it was passed down through, gen through the generations, and that story and promise was of God. God visited their forefather Abraham and told Abraham that he would bless them, that they would become a great nation, and one day that they would have their own land. Last week, our guest preacher Davidson preached from Genesis on the cultural mandate. Do you remember? And uh, God in the garden said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. But Adam and Eve, in sin and rebellion, forfeited God's blessing in sin and, and, and so long story um, short, what ended up happening was that after Adam and Eve, there came Noah. Then after Noah, there came Abraham. And much later in the story, God chose this Abrahamic family to be the family and vehicle in which he would restore this blessing to the world. He said to Abraham, I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so here in Egypt, this is exactly what the Israelite people are doing. They're believing in the promise of old and overtly pursuing the will and intention of God. In other words, despite their godless situation, despite their lacking of good feelings, despite signs and wonders, spiritual progress, movement of God seeming nowhere to be found, while they're in a foreign nation living in a foreign land, by faith, they still 
obeyed. In Genesis chapter 50, the people um, enter into Egypt, uh, numbering 70. And shortly after leaving Egypt in Numbers chapter 1, while the people were at Sinai, God commanded a consensus to be taken. And the post-Israelite army numbered over 600,000 men, which implies that after Egypt, Israel had a population of over 2 million people. It's large enough even to debate the possibility. But the point that I'm trying to make to you here in this first point is that even in silence and even in a place where God seemed nowhere to be found while they were in slavery, Israel believed in God by faith, trusted, and obeyed. And God used their obedience, which had no good feelings, fluffy emotions, to pursue his sovereign will and plan. My brothers and sisters, you don't have to feel God or feel good or feel spiritual to trust and obey. You don't have to sense God or be able to figure out his sovereign plan, the particulars of your life. All you have to do to please him and be faithful is trust him and obey. All you have to do is remember who the scriptures say God is and remember his faithfulness of old and how all throughout the entire biblical story he has shown up for his people and look to God in the scriptures and say, I believe in that and that is going to determine my actions, whether I feel it or not. And the promise is God is going to use it. The Lord, through his will, will be pleased to use you and be worshipped. I remember after I first became a Christian, I started to be discipled by this one man, this mentor. I talk about him often. It's because discipleship is everything to me. Um, I remember after we started meeting for a little while, we would meet over coffee or lunch, and we'd start to talk about things. And I remember just noticing how non-emotional he was. We would meet about a certain topic or a certain thing happening in our lives, and he would just kind of think his way through. And he would always arrive at the same conclusion, that God is faithful, therefore we will trust and obey. Emotions have a spot in Christianity. They're beautiful and they're necessary. But I saw this philosophy of choosing God and obeying bear so much fruit in his life, ministry, and family. I visited his church one time, and it was so much different than the church that I was worshiping at. All they did was sing hymns out of a book, and the style was uncomfortable for me, but I went, and uh, they were singing this one hymn from 1887. The title of it is Trust and Obey, and the lyrics went like this, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide when we trust and obey. Oh, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, to take him at his word, to rest upon his promises and know, thus saith the Lord. 
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 20 to Peter after Peter was doubting if it was really the resurrected him? After he said, I want to see the holes in your hand. And, and Jesus showed him the holes in his hand to help him in his own doubt. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said this, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Since this is the gospel call, regardless of what our faith or what our life looks like or feels like, to trust and obey God. What is faith? Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his family. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age of conceiving since she considered him faithful who promised her. All these people died in faith, not having received the things promised to them, but having greeted them from afar, acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Many times in this Christian faith, we don't have the Christian happies. And did you know it's okay in the lack of the Christian happies to pray prayers like David did in the Psalms and to say to God, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Wake up, O oh Lord, are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Godly people pray like this. But as you pray like this, my challenge to you is not to let God's lack of overt movement in your life or your lack of feeling him keep you from being faithful. Why? Because your feelings don't determine truth. God's word determines truth. And God's word has within it Hope and promises for you and your life in Christ. God's word is written to remind you that the Lord God himself is faithful. So Psalm chapter 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Lamentations 3, the Lord God is good to those who wait for him. Psalm 37, be still and wait for the Lord. Wait patiently for God. Psalm 130, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I will hope. Genesis 49, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. My brothers and sisters, this is the pattern of the, Christ, the, the faithful man or woman of God. Despite how things feel, despite how things look, by faith to trust and obey. How's life going for you? Is it hard? Is God seemingly nowhere to be found? Do you call for him and he not answer? Do you look for him and you don't see him? Blessed is the man or woman. 
who yet despite these things still trusts and obeys. The Lord will keep you. He'll keep your life. Will you by faith trust and obey? Amen. That was point number one. I'd like to move now deeper into the text and show you our second point, which is inevitable suffering. Well, as the text moves on, um, things take a pretty big turn. If you look there in verse 8, this new king arises. And uh, in verse 9, after seeing Israel's success, he looks over the land and says this, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies against us and escape the land. And, and, and so instead of seeing Israel's growth as a blessing, out of self-preservation and nationalistic hope, what this man does here is seek to hinder God's people and their success by, uh, success by afflicting them with suffering. Moses here is introducing us to what some scholars call the dark days of Israel. In verse 12, the, the word for oppressed literally means to bring low or to beat down. If you look there in verses 13 through 14, it says that the Egyptians used the Israelites ruthlessly, which is a phrase that's only repeated five times in the entire Bible, which it it signifies burden and hardship and mercilessness behavior. And so that's how they're being treated here. In addition to all this, a further hardship becomes a reality for God's people, which is the potential um, threat and murder of their newborn babies. In verse 16, if you look there, this king says this to the midwives, the two midwives. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. What I want for us to notice about the way that Moses records this king's words here is just how personal they are. He doesn't record the king's words saying, if it's a boy, they shall die, and if it's a girl, they shall live. But but he uses those personal words, son and daughter, to help us to get a sense of the reality of suffering that human beings face in the context of family. So Moses doesn't want us to read the story from a distance. He wants us as readers to, to draw in and relate to these people, to the fact that God's people in this life face suffering. One man named Desmond Alexander said this, Pharaoh here is presented as an anti-God figure whose actions are clearly intended to curb the fulfillment of God's purposes on earth. Pharaoh's antagonism toward the Israelites is much more than dislike or prejudice. It is an attack on God and his will for humanity. And so here, this king, this Pharaoh, out of self-interest and sin, has so redefined good and evil that even the murder of innocent children has become a good thing to him. Sick. And so you want to know what makes our trust and obedience to God hard? In light of the first point, this, suffering, which comes to us as an effect and byproduct of the fall and of sin and of evil in this world and present age. Satan uses suffering to ruin our faith and hope in God. And so maybe the tempting question for you, it certainly is for me, 
is to look at this text and the story of God's people here and ask this question, God, for real? Is this your plan for your people to bring them into Egypt and to make them suffer? Yes, it was to bring his people to Egypt, but I just want to let you know that God didn't make these people suffer. Pharaoh did. Pharaoh's responsible for the hardening of his heart. It was his sin. He used his free will to rebel against God and oppress God's people, which is the same exact thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden after they chose sin. Do you remember? After they chose to rebel against God and pursue their own ways, what ended up happening was that this curse fell on humanity and all of creation. And humanity and all of creation was subject to the curse against its will. So all things became corrupt and evil. There are certain things in this fallen life that we as God's people must not only be willing to call evil, but need to call evil. Two, th- two things in this text that Pharaoh displays. Number one is a love for abortion, calling it good. And number two is a justification of racism and treating foreigners with mercilessness. All for the sake of nationalistic hope. Nationalistic hope. Some, of the, some, some people do this in the name of Jesus, by the way. The term for it is called Christian nationalism. If you don't know what Christian nationalism is, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes a fusion of Christianity with American civic life as if God's America is God's special chosen nation and as, as if it's more loved than any other country and that through politics, humanity in this world can be saved. America is not more special than any other nation. The gospel's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is for all people groups. Politics will save nobody. Why? Because the human soul is corrupt. It will always be like this, saints, until the second coming. Politics and humanity will be corrupt and perverted, divisive and sick, no matter what party it is. Therefore, we don't put our hope in any nationalistic party or nationalistic hope. We put our hope in our God who is redeeming the people and reversing Babel. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is being united by Christ. And we seek mercy to the foreigner. We seek to fight for the lives of the unborn and the mothers who are going to keep those kids. We're, mercy, we're merciful to all of those people. And so what's the hope for God's people in this text? Well, the hope is for offered to all people, but it's only applied to a specific people. The church, for those whose hope is in the Lord, their God. What is the hope specifically? It's not that for us as Christians, God is going to remove our suffering in this life, at least. It's that God, in his sovereign reign and control, promises to use our suffering to prepare us and ready us for glory, to refine us and strengthen us and bless us and grow our character. If you look here in the text, as Israel's being persecuted and suffering, all that Moses records is that they continue to grow and flourish. Through slavery 
and brutal mistreatment, nothing is stopping God's people. This is true for God's people, the church, throughout the test of time. When does the gospel move forward and the church advance the most, historically speaking? When it's persecuted and it suffers. So you can hinder us. You could seek to stop our message. You could destroy our faith. Tell us that we're bigots. Tell us that we are not merciful people. Try to prevent our church gatherings. But the promise comes from Jesus Christ. And the promise from our Savior to us saints is that nothing will stop the power of the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The power of the gospel, as we suffer in this fallen, broken world, as fallen, sinful people, will continue on in us and through us for the sake of God's glory. And God's kingdom will come here on earth just as it is through heaven because we have the spirit of Christ. You, dear Christian, in all of your suffering and all of your pain, and all of your tears, and all of your depression, and all of your anxiety, and all of your lowliness, will not ultimately be put to shame. You'll not be put to shame. God's working all things together for your good. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak, then there's an opportunity to become strong. Bad things happen to faithful people, but God uses those bad things for an ultimate lasting good. Bad things happen to faithful people, but those bad things equip believers for a life of deeper faith and ministry. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that the pa- so at the, pa- the proper time he might exalt you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You want to know what else you need to know about all your suffering? The goal? What's the goal in all of your suffering? Everybody wants to know that. The goal is God. Can you get me here for a second? Hear what I just said. The goal in all of your suffering is God. God, throughout the scriptures, chooses faithful people and allows them to suffer. So at the end of the day, they might have the greatest gift, which is God alone. God is bringing you lowly so you can behold God and know that there's nothing else in this life worth living for. There's nothing else in this life worth living for. There's nothing in this world that will satisfy your soul. Nothing will satisfy your soul. God will satisfy your soul. Suffering is a prize for the Christian because it brings us low to our knees so then we can cry out to God and say, God, save us. And then by mercy, in his goodwill, he saves us. And then we have the source and meaning of life, life himself, God. The most godly people I know are those who have suffered the most. If you're suffering, God wants you. If you're suffering, God's trying to just get your attention. 
If you're suffering, he just wants to be enough for you. And if you ever got that before in your suffering and God actually became enough for you in your suffering, even in the midst of your storm, you get to lay down in a boat and sleep. Even in the midst of a valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because God is with you. He can lay you down in a green pasture. You can be in the presence of enemies and God is preparing a table before you. He may or may not take away the suffering, but when he himself becomes the golden prize, that's all you need. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have found that. You know, oftentimes when I ask people in the context of small groups or Bible studies the, the question out loud, why they think God is um, allowing them to suffer, the most, most often the, the most popular answer to that question is, well, because um, after I get out of this season of suffering, I'll be able to help other people. Nothing wrong with that answer. It's just not the best. Your story's about you and your suffering's about you, about your person. Why is God allowing you to suffer? to teach you about himself and yourself and how much you need him and how much he can be for you to expose your sin and your need from grace and his ability to give it, to sanctify you and make you holy, to grow you in patience and character. So I ask you the applying question as we close this, this second point. Why is God allowing you to suffer? And maybe you don't know the answer, but maybe you can take this as homework this week at home. God, why are you allowing me to suffer? And it will be somewhere along the answer of, so you can have me. And if you by faith have that, the Holy Spirit will do something to you where you can lay down and rest in storms. Amen? That was point number two, inevitable suffering. I'd like to finish and close our time in point number three and show you as this story concludes the grace and promise of Jesus. Well, near the end of this text, we're introduced to two women who pretty much serve as the heroes of this story, two Hebrew ladies in verse 15. The first one is Sapphira and the other one's Pua. This evil king, after he sees the growth and increase of Israel in verse 16, basically told them that their new, new duty, we read it together, If you um, feel God pursuing you, I pray that by mercy you receive his grace. He'll change you. Their um, new duty was to kill the firstborn sons. Um, but in verse 17, if you look there, um, after receiving this command, Moses says in verse 17 this, but the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king commanded, but let the children live. And so basically in the face of the most powerful king in the whole entire world, in Egypt itself, these two slave midwives who seemingly have no power and who are seemingly insignificant through God had all the power, became significant, defied Pharaoh and his rule for the sake of fear in God. And as a result of this obedience in this story, all the newborn Israelite boys were saved. And God, for the obedience, rewarded them with families of their own. 
So these two women here in this story serve as a great example of what it means to fear and follow God. And then we see faith, and then we see them standing up for what is right, and then we see an, an, an unwavering commitment to truth. It's all really good. But as we close, I'd like to say one last thing about the closing to the story, and that is this. It's all really good, but it's not enough. The faithfulness of these women are, are not enough. Here's, here's why it's not enough. Two reasons. Reason number one, because although their faithfulness provided a temporary solution to the threatening problem of death toward God's people, it didn't provide an ultimate one. And number two, although these two women chose what is right, their righteousness was not powerful enough to resolve the fallen condition of the world and the human soul. If these two women were the gospel summary of this message. And all I did with you as we close was tell you when times get hard, do what these women did. Do what is right, stand for God, and be more faithful. My brothers and sisters, that would be no gospel at all. That would be a case for moralism with man as the center figure and savior of this text. What we need to this ultimate dilemma is God. And so the gospel that I want to remind you of here this morning as we close is this. Bad things happen to good people, but the worst thing happened to the perfect person, Jesus Christ, who is not just fully man, but also fully God. And being the sinless son of God, so much better than these is so much better than these two women here because Jesus, not for just one moment in one story, did, did he live a faithful life and stand up for what is right, but with his whole entire life, sinlessly and faithfully, as unto God, to the point of death he died. In other words, Jesus was obedient, and instead of being rewarded life, his consequence was death. And his consequence of death is good news for us because he took our place on our behalf. So that in all of our moments of unfaithfulness and sin and wavering in hard times from God and pushing him away and drifting and falling, we still, because of Christ, would, by the very mouth of God, still through him be declared righteous. You know as well as I do, we can't do it, man. We say we're going to do better. We say we're going to be more faithful to God, start reading our Bibles, going to church, doing all the stuff to do. But what inevitably happens is our hearts grow cold by lunchtime after morning. We all drift and fall away from God and sin. We all doubt when times get hard. We all turn to ourselves to save ourselves and keep our salvation. But God in his grace saw us in our wretched condition. And with mercy in his eyes, sent Jesus Christ, the perfect God man, to take our place and give us his righteousness. And so that through the person and work of Jesus, through his real suffering as a man, God is able to draw near to our suffering and empathize with us as we suffer. He cries with you when you cry. In your sin, because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, God is able to show you mercy over and over and over, times without number for infinity, so you would know nothing but mercy and love. The steadfast love of God endures forever and we're made better by Jesus Christ because he, by his spirit in us, gives us strength to pursue the Lord. My brothers and sisters, this is our hope now and I just want to remind you of our hope coming. 
Eternity makes all the difference in the life of a Christian. We are suffering now. We're waiting on a Savior, but we also have a promise, and that promise is, is that our Savior is coming to us again. We are called, like the people of the Scriptures, to look forward to God's promises. He's going to return for us, his people. We're not just saying it. We actually believe in it. We're living for it. And when he comes, he's going to wipe away all of our tears. There'll be no more sickness or pain or suffering. There will only be ecstasy in his eternal pleasures at his right hand as we behold our Savior. Jesus Christ makes all the difference as we think about trusting, obeying, enduring suffering, and the promises of God to come for us again. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that um, we're not people without hope. You did indeed rise again from the dead, and now we have your spirit, which cries out, which brought us close to you, God. And so would you help us to live more faithfully? We sin. We need mercy, and you've given it to, to us. Bless us as we look to you. We thank you for your word. We will trust and obey. I pray these things in Jesus' name.